Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tommy's got to stay in the middle of the ring. Short uppercut and a good left back from Leonard. You see, Tommy seems to be waking up right now, right then. Tim Ryan with Marvin Hagler, Gil Clancy in round 11 of the scheduled 12 round championship bout. Hearns, Leonard, two. There's a right by Hearns. Big right hand by Tommy Hearns. Another one. And a lift. Down goes Leonard with a combination from Hearns. Leonard looks hurt, gets up, but he is hurting. Hello, welcome to Free State. Hi Joe, how are you? Great. You're very, again, you're very happy with the guest who's well, I couldn't, sitting I, opposite. I, I, I genuinely couldn't believe it when you told me who was going to be here. I, I didn't think you were pulling my leg. You did, didn't yeah, you? Really did. Um, yeah. And you're a huge, and we'll, we'll get into the detail maybe at some stage of, during this interview, of yeah. your level of... Uh, Devotion to our to well, our yeah, maybe not, maybe not, maybe not devotion. <laughs> but um, well, he uh, he he has made me think a lot. We are joined today by the great Richard Ford, author of. We, do we need to go through the the, the books? The yeah. Yes, every, every last one. Pulitzer <laughs> Pulitzer Prize winner, Pulitzer Prize winner, yeah. Independence Day, and his latest book, uh, Be Mine, is the final final book in the in the in the Frank Bascom story uh, and it's 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 full of the usual wonderful uh, observations and uh, details about about life and about America today I suppose um, and a story about fathers and sons as well I, and one of the things that struck me reading it Richard is that while it's described as the Frank Bascom the final Frank Bascom book it is when you read it, you realize that all these books are about his son as well, about Paul Bascom. He figures in all of them, actually. Um, but, I mean, if you, if you had one surviving son, it, it's just my view that he would figure in your life uh, unendingly, it seems to me. Whether you were in the room with him or not, or whether he lives in the same city with you, he would be part of your living, breathing context. Yeah, I, uh, I uh, was going through a separation, and... Uh, found the sports writer. 
You don't mean a psychic separation? No, no, an actual, you know, living in a flat in my own separation <laughs> type of thing. And in, the, and in the depths of misery, I come across The Sports Writer, one of your great works. And uh, I read it and, you know, it's, it's not so much that, you know, it's not that there's really particular plots or anything. It's, it's all the things that it made me think about. And, you know, like a springboard for the imagination. Well, that's what a book should do. You know, that's what a literary book should do. It, b- it should be a book that you have a conversation with. You, you bring your preoccupations and your troubles and your joys, and the book says things to you, and you say, oh, well, that's rubbish. No, that's wrong. But, but you have that conversation. Yeah, but with, it, was, is, is, you know, it was the separation and you know, the way that was described. And I thought, you know, th- th- this is exactly what I'm going through. Mm. And, then, and then about a year ago, I read that you'd been happily married for 40 years. Almost, almost sixty. For <laughs> sixty years. Yeah, and right. it was. I well, mean, it, it, it it's, just it's must astonishing be. that 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 you would have that feel for something that you have no experience of. Well, it's a. It's my job um, to have that feeling, but it's also true that um, you know it must be around us everywhere. Those those kinds of experiences must be something that we are, whether we're particularly empathetic or not. It must just be available to us because, indeed, I, I know nothing about being separated. I know nothing about divorce, I mean, other than in my own life. But I just, I, I, I just, I'm just a person who pays attention. Yeah, how do you see it? I mean, how, <laughs> I suppose it's like these chameleons, these, um, you know, someone who, who produces these works of the imagination day in, day out. I mean, how can you, how can you sort of empathize or, or, or see out from a happy, a happy life. Well, you know, when I'm when I'm happy, I, I just think everybody's got to be happy. Well, I've never thought that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, um, I, I had an answer to that question, but it floated away. When you say you're, you're you're somebody who pays attention, though, because that's not everybody's gift to pay attention. Like lots of people walk around looking at themselves. Oh, you mean most of our friends? <laughs> maybe, maybe everybody. <laughs> and maybe more and more in the modern world where we're encouraged to be kind of narcissistic and inward looking, whether it's people posting videos of themselves on their phones, all that kind of thing. Or their dinner, or their feet, yeah, or worse. But did, did that sense of paying attention come from, do you, are, do you remember always being aware of what was going on around you, a kind of uh, heightened sense of being alert or was it when, you know, I know your, your, your father died when you were 16. Was that something that took you into that state of being kind of more, more aware of everything around you? I think so. I was a child of parents who were 15 years married before they figured out how to ha- have a baby. And then they couldn't figure it out again. So I was alone with them all the time. As, and, and they, again, were that many more years beyond the normal childbearing years. And, and so they, they were the only act in town for me. And so I just was watching them all the time, listening to the things that they said because it was a, I didn't have a lot of friends. We, we were transients living in Mississippi from where they had grown up in Arkansas. And I, I didn't, and my mother, because I was an only child, was terrified somebody was going to kidnap me or I was going to run away. What about your dad? What did he do? He was a traveling salesman 
which is to say he got in his car on Monday morning and drove all week to seven states in the American South and sold one product, which was laundry starch. But the other thing was, I, I was and am dyslexic. And when you are dyslexic, mildly or less or more than mildly, um, you have to pay attention because one of dyslexia's qualities is that what you read or what you hear doesn't really find a residence in your mind unless you're basically trying to make it do that. So how do you, how do you actually write when you sit down to write? You, you mean, well, um, I'm uh, a lifelong note taker because I have to write things down because otherwise I'll forget them. And so when I set about to write a book, I take about 10 years' worth of notes and I accumulate them and I study them and I section them off into the various forms of what I think my book will contain. And I just study those notes all the way through the three or four years that it takes me to write the book. And I just try to f put the things that are in my notes, which I think are worth putting into a book, into the book. And, and so it's just notes from the imagination. And, you know, you, so what you, mean you stitch you things together. You stitch notes together. If you think that the composition like Reskin said, is the arrangement of unequal things. My notes are a big melange of unequal things, and I'm just trying to stitch them together into some new hole that they didn't have before. Yeah, but when, when you sit down, I'm just asking you about yeah. the process of it. So you sit down, you're starting at the start now. You know, you finish one sort of huge project and you're starting again, mm -hmm. you know, that's like, we know this isn't a Jeffrey Archer job, you know, <laughs> or what do you call maybe, her? Maybe what do you call her? Barbara were. Cartland. <laughs> Take it out, Dalek. <laughs> the handsome dark stranger came through that. But uh, so you're sitting down, and how do you start? Well, I start by studying. I, I start by immersing myself in all the raw materials that I think might find a place in my book, so that on any given day, I. I, don't, I never look at a blank page. I have a bunch of notes to the side of me, which I can begin by, if I want to, uh, uh, transcribing right onto the page in front of me. So I'm, I'm never without things to think about, without okay, things well, let, to let, write. Let, let, me, let me try and tease this out with you. Uh -huh. Okay. It won't get more you truthful than what I just know, said. You don't have to say anything. Anything you do say may be taken mm -hmm. down and used against Joe's a so lawyer. Let's go to the, the start of Canada. Yes. Epic opening. First, I'll tell about the robbery our parents committed, then about the murders, which happened later. Mm. Okay. Boom. Now, how does that, how do you start? And, and what notes could you possibly have that would, that would be the launch pad for that idea? Well, A, I don't remember. But B, um, um, this B, man would hold up well on the interrogation. <laughs> well, I'm from the Trump age, you know. I don't remember anything. Um, um, but B, it could very well have been, Joe, that I had that very line written in my notebook. And when I saw it, I thought, ooh, put that in there. You know, it's as, it's as opportunistic as that. Because yeah. there is, because I did, I did want to. When you explain that, it makes sense about a lot of things because the, the, your books don't skip along like a Grisham or anything like that. I, I not, should be richer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Make them skip along a little better. <laughs> yeah, it's well, interesting. You know. Canada, you know, is the only really seriously plotted book I ever wrote because 
I don't know. That's just how it worked out. But I thought to myself, why haven't you been doing that all these years? Jesus yeah. Christ, you'd have a nicer car, a bigger house. Because of it, yeah. the way it was received uh, or the way it sold. Well, uh, I think maybe plotted books gain more readers uh, than the kinds of books that I typically write. And then I wrote this one plotted book, and it was on the Times bestseller list for 10 weeks. And I thought, shit, I ought to do that. Do that. That. And, why, and why didn't you then? I didn't want to. Right. Why? <laughs> I liked it the way I was doing yeah, it before. Yeah. See, yeah. When, and did you find it harder to write them? No. There's, no. there's nothing hard about that. Nothing hard about writing books. <laughs> <laughs> if, it, if it was very hard, I couldn't do it. Yeah. I'm not is, smart are, enough. Does, does, is, are, you a, are you a fixated person? Do you, do you, do you obsess on things? Do you, do you obsess well, I don't, on I don't obsess on writing books. I obsess yeah. on other things, but I don't yeah. obsess on writing books. No. I mean, writing books but is Do you have a daily me. routine, for example, where you, where you write, or is it a totally random thing? I mean, do you have a shed at the bottom of the garden you go down to and you say, I'm not to be fucking disturbed for the I next? did. I did for 25 years. Yeah. I had a shed down by the ocean. We lived right on the sea in Maine, and every day I would go down there and spend the day. And um, it was just great. So it, it was far from a matter of obsession. It was a refuge. Refuge from obsessions and things that, you know, I worry about, you know, whether or not the leaf gutters are, are being cleaned out properly, whether or not the flu is being cleaned, uh, you know, wh whether or not the neighbor next door is an asshole. I, um, that seems to be a big thing in America, whether or well, not because, the neighbor next door is an asshole. Well, it's a big thing because America is founded on property rights, as you well know. And, but so is Britain, though. I mean everything. Everything in common law, you know, issued from property rights, and and um, so we have a version of common law. And so, who your neighbor is, and what he wants of what you own, and, and what you don't want him to have, uh, is is a, a source of some friction in, yeah. in in the country. I think it comes across very strongly. You know, yes, I, I don't know if sure. you ever read Robert Putnam, the Harvard sociologist's great work. No, um, Bowling Alone talking about the sort of disintegration in civic life and community life in America. Well, he's not wrong. You know, he's not yeah, wrong. And, um, and sort of culminating in a nation of strangers, you know, mm. which, you, which you really have in, in England now. But, but we're very fortunate in Ireland. We don't have that. We have things like the Gaelic Athletic Association. We have great community associations. And so there's that building block of, of community, which is, look, I know you and you know yes. me. Uh, you know, people know each other's kids. You know, it's a very communal life here in Ireland. And I mean, I was very struck when I went to America most recently, how apart people are and how suspicious they are, therefore, of each other. I would have to say you're right. You know, I, I, where my wife and I live in Montana, we have a house in the West, and it's in a, it's in a kind of a nice little subdivision and um, a relatively new houses. And there's a guy down the street from me who has a sign on his house that says, Trump won in 2020, fuck Joe Biden. And, and every time I come back from my office and drive back home, I expect him to be out there in the road with his AK-47 saying, we've declared martial law now in, in the subdivision, so you can't come in unless you have something, something, something. I should, yeah. I should say that my wife is Joe Biden's cousin. Is she? Yeah, very cool. close to Joe. Well, I'm a Joe Biden enthusiast. I wish he weren't running for president, but he is. <laughs> <laughs> you wish he wasn't running. Yeah, he's too old. Really? Yeah. I'm 79. He's 79. I'm too old. He's too old. And I'm in a hell of a lot better shape than he's in. 
<laughs> can, we, can we cut this bit out? <laughs> no. Just to want my wife cut to hear it. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We don't cut anything out. But it is, it is that 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 sense of isolation. You have a line in Be Mine where you just say it's, it's rare anymore to know anyone who lives next door to you. Yes. Yeah, yeah because um, particularly uh, close-in subdivisions, old older subdivisions in a town such as that, which is Rochester, Minnesota. Are, are being bought up by flip artists and being bought up by corporations and they're being turned into Airbnbs or executive, you know, executive apartments or they're just being torn down. And so the old way in which you did know the person next to you is, is, is dwindling in, in America, particularly in the older, older cities. And, and it seems like, you know, now in America that even – basic civic decency is on retreat you know with this with this very what we would see as crazy rise of this sort of white nationalist fervor I suppose starting with the election of Obama probably there before that always it's been there yeah it's, it's always been, been, there. been there sort of unleashed at the end of the Cold War in a way because there was no you know at least during the Cold War, there was an enemy that sort of mm. that, that that there was sort of a common enemy. But I mean, I was struck Denver Riggleman, the he, who left Congress, the Republican yes. congressman. He said when he was asked, you know, why he was leaving, he said, "Look, you know, he said Look, we've got to the stage now where maybe thirty percent of the people in this country believe that Lord of the Rings is real." Mm. <laughs> yeah, and so. You know, it's it's distressing to watch that from afar to see what's happening to America. Well, we feel it, certainly. But, you know, my job as a novelist is to deal only not in gener generalities but in particulars. To do good, like Blake said, to do good, you must do good in particulars. And so my job to do good is to try to propose a version of life which causes my readers to think that they are more like their neighbors, more like the people they know yeah. than unalike. But is that is that harder to reach people like that because you talk about the person with the Trump sign, that sense of aggressive uh, demonstration of your beliefs which seems to have accelerated in America. Like you, you wrote uh, before you, know, you said we, or you said we didn't we didn't uh, there were happy they were happier times about the past. We didn't respect people for, we didn't respect people for disagreeing with them. Right. We didn't disrespect people for disagreeing with them, and that did I really so, say that? You, you did. Yeah. Well, someone said I said it. It's great that he doesn't remember. You're like well, Mick Jagger. You know, forgot that he'd he'd written his autobiography in the seventies. <laughs> it was like a hundred thousand word biography, and and whenever Penguin finally announced, sort of in the noughties, that they were going to release this long held back autobiography by Mick Jagger from the seventies, his solicitors immediately sought an injunction. From them, but they owned that, it, didn't they? And they had, well, they had sent through all the material that showed that they'd given him a million pounds advance and, pay, and paid for it. I mean, come on, he had forgotten yeah. that he'd written a hundred thousand yeah. word autobiography. But you know, I'm, I'm I, the reason I wonder if I said that because I, 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 I don't think when I look back that I'm looking back to more halcyon times. Right. I mean, I grew up in Mississippi. Believe me, the fifties were no. Yeah. No birthday party, particularly if you're an African American. Uh, so, looking backward and trying in that Republican way, and that I mean, our, our version of Republican way, yeah. right wing way, uh, to, to, to see a, a better time now gone is not my habit. No, 
No, I, I, I think it was a character maybe who said it. Oh, I see. So. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. I have no responsibility no, for that sir, at all. No, that's just something. And that's yet, just a note, that, a note that came to you in the night. And, and yet for, a, yet, yet for you know, what you say about, you know, concentrating on the particulars and trying to sort of improve life, your, your books are tinged with sadness, with there's a sense of loss in all of them. Yeah. It's just why I was so surprised when I heard about when I found out that you had been married for 60 yeah. years. And, well, you know, I think... Where does that come from, that sense of... comes from the human condition and being empathetic toward it. I mean, there's a line of Ralph Waldo Emerson's, and he says that whenever we look at the state of humanity, we feel a sense of melancholy. And I, yeah. I don't know if that's as true as Emerson thought it was, uh, but I do know that when I look at people... Uh, the part of my empathy, part of my sense of participating in the life that they are living somehow comes out, and it's just me, I guess, somehow comes out a little bit. Um, both funny, I think it's funny, the human condition is, uh, but also tinged with some sadness. Yeah. yeah maybe, it's just a, maybe it's just the sadness that life yeah, ends. I, 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 would say no, yeah. I would say that they're, that the books are more consoling than... <clears throat> I would too. I would hope that, so. Not hopeful. I would. You know, I would want them to be consoling. Yeah. I wouldn't I mean, want you to come away feeling so, sad. It's just you know, they're just. I mean, you should never think that leaving a marriage sets you loose for cheery womanizing in some exotic life you'd never quite grasped before. <laughs> <laughs> These are all the passages you mark when you were. Living, yeah, yeah. Living I found that. I found that out. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. But when you say yeah. it's uh, it's consoling because you're the, the opening. The, fi- the final chapter and the opening chapter of, of Be Mine are both called Happiness. Right. And Not by accident. No. And is, is that in- inextricably linked up with that sense of loss because we are always pursuing happiness? And you say at the, in say at the opening, you think it, it's, it's one thing you feel that's worth actually well, when I was when I was <clears throat> a sports writer back in the early '80s, and then that job fell out from under me, I came back down to New Jersey where Christina, my wife, and I were living, and I thought, well, I'll give this uh, novel writing bit one more try. And she said to me one morning, she said, "You know, I've I've thought of something." She said, "Why don't you, why don't you write about somebody who's happy for a change?" She said, "All you've done is write two books about people who are not happy." And so I, I, I took that seriously, and I sat down and thought a couple of months about it. And I thought, well, how can I write a book about somebody happy who that is also an interesting book because Tolstoy said all happy families are alike and they, of course, are not. But nonetheless, writing about happy people can be boring. And I thought, well, what I can do is I can write about a person who suffered loss, in the case of the sports writer, the loss of a son to, to, to illness. And um, he then is trying to find a means, a vocabulary, a mechanism in his life to make himself happy. And so that's how I could write about happiness. Happiness um, is always a balancing act, it seems to me, particularly as you, as you get older and you get nearer your own demise. Uh, but it's nonetheless imperative. Uh, and what are, do you mean you by lonely happiness? Per- Sorry. Sorry, Am I lonely? No. Are you, are you a lonely no. person? No. Not in the least. Just there's something. Lo- there's a lonely vibe about you. Well, sorry, you're just wrong. <laughs> we'll have to take a drink after this. <laughs> you know, the cure for loneliness is solitude. I may be solitary, but I'm not lonely. The cure. I don't for miss anything. I don't miss solitude. anything. No. It's a great line. But does it actually mean anything? It does if you think it does.
Ha 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 you're in the wrong game. You should have <laughs> come into the law. Well, I did do that, so I, yeah. I went to law school. And you said, you said, which I was very interested in, because I've been sports writing for, you know, played sports. I've been sports writing now for well, 25 years. You said something about sports writing. You said that it was... Uh, that the sports writer was essentially superficial. Yeah. Yeah. It is, isn't it? Don't yeah, you think it is? The fact that you're not slugging it out in the ring, but you're this vicarious glory that you're writing about the next day and uh, that sort of thing. There used to be a guy in L.A. Did you play sports? I did, very badly. But, I played, but actually, the older I've got, the better athlete I am. That, that may happen to you yet. Um, but you know, it's highly <laughs> unlikely. That was, my, that was my nocturnal habits. But I still play squash, so... Um, yeah. Uh, but there was a, there was this guy in L.A. in the 70s called Superfan, and he was an old sports writer, but he was on radio now. And at the end of every broadcast, he would say, and don't forget, he would say, um, sports is just the toy department. And I always thought, well, that's right, isn't it? It's the yeah. toy department. And, I, and, I, and the books that I like least are books that, that, that try to make sports a metaphor for life because sports are not a metaphor for life. If, if, I don't think life, A, needs a metaphor. That's a line. You yeah. wrote that in the sports writer. I hope I did. Yeah, you did. I believe it. That's one of those lines I wrote that I actually believe. People yeah. are always looking for that meaning in sport, aren't they, when it's, yeah. it's, it's actually maybe yeah, but it's the, the escape from the meaning. It's, it's a dry hole, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but isn't there a sort of... You know, isn't there a sort of glow that you feel, whether it's in your imagination or not? You know, say someone like Muhammad Ali that Mailer tried so desperately to be close to. Yes. You know, almost to, you know, to be in there. You know, the fact that he jogged with him, you know, in the in the, in the the run-up to yeah. his epic fight yeah. in, 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 the the, in Zaire with, yeah. with, with Foreman. You know, even though he had six glasses of wine, you know, and had to had to sort of prevent himself from vomiting as he sort of trailed in Ali's wake. Yeah. And uh, and yet, you know, who could have described that fight? And who could have described Ali the way Mueller did? There's something epic and unforgettable about that as well, surely. But it was a but it was from the outside in though, I think. Um it, it was it was it was preservative of, of, of Ali's image, preservative of Ali's peculiar greatness, um, which only haphazardly corresponded with who the man was and yeah. how his life was. And I would be interested only in that. If I were gonna write about him, I would be interested in who the man was, or if I made someone up, that's what yeah. would interest Sierra me. Cynic. His grandeur, his, his 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 celebrity, his glory, would, would would almost have only incidental relationship to those things. Yeah, I, I mean, you're 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 obviously a cynic. I'm I mean, not. Who, who could, you can't be a novelist and be a cynic. Who could? You can you can, you can who, be skeptical. Who couldn't bask in those words? You know, what I'm saying it is always a shock to see him in the flesh again. Ali. Yeah, the man, the world's most beautiful man, you know. And then the language of camp is doomed to appear. I did see him in the flesh uh, one time in, in Pauley Pavilion in Los Angeles. He was standing down there. It was when he was out of boxing for the time that they kicked him out. Yeah. He was just there alone standing in Pauley Pavilion. And I was sitting with my wife. I said, God, I said, there's the champ. I said, I, I just got to go down. And, and, and I don't know, I just want to touch him. I just want to meet him. And so I went down there. I was about 26 years old. And, I said to him, you know, stupidly, I said, champ, I said, uh, when are you gonna, who are you going to fight next? Because he hadn't fought anybody for a while. And he kind of 
he kind of looked away from me like this. <laughs> and all of a sudden he said, you sucker. And he, <laughs> and he, and he, and he put this, he put this hand that, that was his, Big as a car fender <laughs> in, in, in my face. And I, I just, I was just galvanized by it. <laughs> you sucker. What a man. What a fighter. Oh, uh, yeah. He was a piece of work, I'll tell you. Oh, yeah. Great man. Oh. Great man. What do you mean you can't be a cynic and be a novelist? Well, you have to believe that good exists. And um, if you're a cynic, you have doubts that good exists. I'm an optimist, actually, is what I am. I believe that good exists. I believe that not always will it will it will it win, but it, it exists. It will keep percolating up. I think anybody who writes novels is fundamentally an optimist because you believe, you know, like Yeats said, that art the arts are dreaming of what is to come, and novelists are always thinking about down the line someone will have a use for this book. Down the line there will be a world where people will be alive. Down the line, down the line. So, uh, what is to come is what I'm dedicated to with these books. Yeah. See, I was so, um, I don't know, impelled by Canada. <laughs> Canada. <laughs> I was going through that period that in the space of about two weeks, I wrote 30,000 words of what was going to be the great Irish novel. Good for you. Oh, yeah. It was, Good it was, for you. It was going to be great. <laughs> what happened? I've, I've forgotten all about it now. <laughs> did you just, did you just run I wrote out? about this, um, you know, the culpo de fulmine meeting the girl, you know, and, uh, Sounds good. You know, it was a dream, like an opium high. It was like a dream with, no, you know, it was like a dr like an opium high with no bad side effects. And I wrote out this whole thing about, oh. <laughs> I mean, it was going to be great. <laughs> it sounds like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what he ran out of steam. Was from the I'm afraid to look at it again. <laughs> well, no, you know, it's everybody runs out of steam. I run out of steam yeah. all the time. And then that's when you have to start writing. Yeah, but not after two weeks. That's yeah, yeah, oh, sure, of course, <laughs> absolutely. 30,000 words in two weeks. But that's what I mean. That's pretty it, good. It, it's, it's, you know, anyone who hasn't read Richard's works, it's, it's, for me, it's, a, it's, a, it's where imagination starts. It's the things that I found myself thinking about. It wasn't so much being riveted by, you know, page after page mm. after page, and I've got to find out what's happening next. It was more... The books give you space to think. Well, I write like I uh, like I read. I read slowly because I'm dyslexic, and I think I read with an, uh, an attention to all qualities in language that are not just uh, cognitive qualities. It's the qualities of how a line looks on the page, how a word sounds in your ear, how many beats yeah. it has, all those things. You, you mentioned poetry. We were talking before. Yeah. All my teachers were poets, and so I think I write the way I learned to read. So that's where the sports writer comes from anyway. The, the Bascombe sports writer comes from your own life. Well, what sort of sports I, did you write about? Hmm? I, wrote, I wrote about boxing and football, our, our football. Really? Who did, football. who did you see fight? Thomas Hearns. Uh, uh, let, let me just all, let me all just those stop All those great welterweights <laughs> from the Croc Gym. Yeah. Who did yeah. you see him fighting? Oh... Trying to think. Well, I, I saw him, him fight Leonard. Did you see him knocking Leonard down? I saw I saw him fight Leonard. Um, and um, God, my brain has gone foggy now. Uh, I was so I was so enamored of him. He was such a he was such a strange, wonderful, so magisterial strange, creature. Yeah. Um, 
But I saw Michael Moore, who was a Kronk Gym fighter. He was a he was a light heavyweight, and then he became yeah, a heavyweight. Somebody beat the, beat the shit out of him. Um, but and, he, uh, and Tommy looked like. Yeah, you know his casual clothes. He looked like a giant pimp. You oh, know, with the, he was, oh yeah, the fedora and the long leather coat and the. You know, he finished his career uh, fight, fighting as a heavyweight. What a fight! He went from he went from one forty seven to about one ninety eight. But wasn't it an extraordinary thing that a guy who fought with such sort of scintillating adventure? Yeah, you know, against some of the most fearsome punchers that have ever Shavers. been in a ring, had such a glass chin. I mean, as soon as he got touched on the chin, it was like, Phew. Well, he, he, there were some fights when he took a lot of punishment, um, uh, Tommy. He took a lot oh, of I punishment without falling down. I mean, uh, nobody knocked out Roberto Duran. Tommy, Tommy knocked about, about 30 seconds to yeah. him. Yeah, he was terrified. I mean, he, he was terrified. He was terrified. What was it like to sort of, to, you saw him fighting in the flesh? Yes, I did. What the was that gym. like? Oh, well, I mean, um, it's uh, the thing you can't see on TV, and even if you're ringside in a big in a big arena, the thing you can't really f- hear is the pop. You can't you can't hear the pop of the glove into the kidney. You can't hear that. So what if what what it was like was an abattoir. That's what it was like in the in the crunk gym back in the back in the late seventies and early. It's 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 just like impact on flesh. Hard, continuous impact on flesh. Um, yeah, the the beauty of it, the the grace of it, gets lost when you when the first time you hear somebody oh, yeah. get whacked in the ribs or in the kidney or in the liver. It's just not not pretty. I wouldn't I wouldn't do it now. I was young then myself, and I I, I was kind of enamored of it, but I'm not enamored of it now. Yeah, George Plimpton was enamored of the fighting for a while too. He was. And, and Archie Moore knocked him sideways. Yeah. Well, he shouldn't George, have got into the ring with Archie Moore. It wasn't a, yeah, but he wasn't knew, a great he knew, idea. Yeah, but George was a good friend of mine. He he knew what he was doing. He got in that ring to get the shit knocked out of him. Just like just like he just like he certainly achieved his achieved his aim. And just like he played for the Lions, you know, for the Detroit Lions, he got on the field in order to have those guys just basically trample him. Yeah, yeah there must have been something seriously wrong with George. Well, he was a he I mean, was, he was a he, he was, was a frail he was a frail privately educated schoolboy. You know, who I think played a bit of tennis, and then his big idea was that he was going to fight Archie Moore, one of the most fearsome yeah, but he didn't hitters he, that ever fought. But he didn't think anything but what was going to happen was going to happen. I don't think he thought he was going to get yeah. pulverized the way quite he did. But yeah. he, you, you don't get in the ring with a guy like Archie Moore and think you're going to last yeah. more than eight seconds. I think maybe Archie had like 180 professional fights. Yeah. I think he knocked out something like <laughs> something ridiculous. Thought like he, knocked he, out, thought he knocked he out like 60. 805 people. <laughs> Yeah. Did he fight till he was sixty? Uh, just about, yeah. Like Foreman, Foreman fought till he was fifty-two, I think. Yeah, but Foreman didn't fight for long time. For you know, long during time. his during his prime, he didn't fight. I mean, he was. I think it was such a an enormous blow to his sense of self when Muhammad Ali humiliated him in yeah, Zaire. That he was. I I think he had. It it looks from the outside like some sort of psychological breakdown. I don't know. I don't know. I just. I mean, I've ever thought about Mah- boxing Muhammad Ali that. knocked religion into him. <laughs> <laughs> he beat religion into him. When you were covering those fights, did it? Did you feel aware of the limitations of being a sports writer then, p- compared to what you wanted to write about, or what you wanted to write about, <clears throat> looking at the people you were <clears throat> no, covering? 
No, I it, believe me, if I hadn't lost that job by the magazine falling out from under me, I would have kept on doing it and never written another novel in my life. Okay. I thought that was the best job I ever had. I had a good time. I flew all around the country first class. I ate in the best restaurants. I had, just had the time of my life. It was. I thought, this is, this is died and gone to heaven for me. And then it went away. And then I slumped back down, as I said, back to New Jersey and tried to figure out what else I could do. And that was all I could figure out. Is it, is it true then in the, in the sports writer about you'd started a novel? You know, in the sports writer, he starts, he starts the book, he leaves it in the drawer, and then he never goes back to it again. I mean, did I do that? Because the, the, the sports writer, you know, it speaks very highly of being a sports writer, apart yes. from the fact that it's superficial. Well, it is. Yeah, well, no, I get that. I understand that. I mean, so is selling starch. <clears throat> yeah, but to be a true sports writer, you have to be a fan. You have to be transported. You have to be a fan, a super fan. Well, you ha- well I never thought about that. Uh, I, I'm generally unwilling to disbelieve anybody when they say you have to do this or you have to do that. Uh, no, but everybody I know who who writes properly about sports is a fan. They're way they're way over the top. They're they're, they're super fans. Hmm. I mean, sure. I mean, the great American tradition of sports writing, you know, let's you know go back to DiMaggio and all of that. Was always it was almost that they promoted these sportsmen whenever people couldn't see them on television. They promoted these sportsmen as gods on the page so that when people read it in hick towns all over America and anywhere in the world where they get newspapers, they were in awe. Yes. Like, this man is a ball of fire. In their mind, that guy was a ball of fire. You know, and so surely the whole tradition of sports writing was essentially fandom. Well, I would say this about it. And you and you have your view. And you and I probably agree more than I would disagree. I find sports writers now to be in the business of taking away, taking away from athletes, take, looking for the looking for the the flaw in their character, looking for the weakness in their game, looking for looking for some little cheap kind of drama to uh, to to expand upon, and so that. That vitiates my sense of how much of a fan they always are. Yeah, but now the game is to look for friction because everybody can right. see for themselves. And so to sell, <clears throat> you need to find friction. You need to find some sort of... Well, know. that would make me think then that they are, that sports writers are often, and you can't, again, say always, are, are often cynical about the people, at least about the people themselves. At least not the game, maybe. Maybe yeah. not cynical about the game. But about but about the practitioners of the game, because I'm always seeing them pinching little bits off, mm. you know, finding something that they don't like that they want to talk about to the exclusion of the more interesting things, which is yeah. for me always how the game is played. The least cynical writers are those who write about boxing. Boxing. Cause, yeah, because there's something I think deep down in people. Something atavistic. <clears throat> yeah, yeah the, you might be right. That thrills the violence. It could be right. Uh, um, because everybody's weaknesses, everybody's flaws in boxing are immediately apparent. You don't have to, you don't have to pitch them off. Yeah, and there's something about that stepping through the ring, stepping into the ring. Yeah. You know, and they step into the ring like a colossus gleaming, you know, and, yeah. and you know what's coming. Yep. And then someone, you know, is knocked out and... George Plimpton famously said, you know, they shrink to the size of a pea. Yeah. You don't even see them leaving the ring. Right. 
But there's something incomparably vastly dramatic about that. It's in, innately dramatic. You don't have to. You don't have to make it up. And you must have felt that. Mm. I mean, when Tommy I, Hearns was knocking a guy sparkle, in spite of your human instincts, which are Jesus Christ, is this guy okay? There's another part of you that wants to cheer and punch the air. Yeah. I don't remember. It's been f- 40 years ago. A lot of water under that dam. <laughs> do you think it's... <laughs> and over that bridge. <laughs> do you think when people, you know, it's harder for people to say, look at the how it was done in, for professional sports now because they can't get beyond how much money people are earning. Yeah, there you are. Or whether they're, you know, cheating on their wives or, mm. or whether or not they're, you know, doing something they oughtn't be doing. Yeah. I mean... I just think sports have ever has always been that way. I mean, when Ty Cobb was playing playing baseball, uh, he's one of the bigger racists in the world, and uh, you know, come in cleats up. So I, I I don't think it's necessarily gotten any worse or any better. <laughs> they could athletes could get away with a lot more. I mean, I remember reading. I don't know who wrote the the biography of Joe DiMaggio, and uh, I remember reading the story about Bea Bruce that was in the about. Him whenever they would go, whenever they would go on an away trip, playing away games, and the newspaper man who had the inside track on everything that Babe was doing would drive him around, and they would look for signs in these remote areas where you know chicken supper. Yeah. And while while the newspaper man would go in and have the chicken supper, he said that Babe would be down in the bedroom with the farmer's daughter, mm. <laughs> and he said this was this was repeated with amazing frequency all over America. <laughs> it was ever thus. <clears throat> Well, there's yeah. a line in, in, in the book about when you, because in the book, uh, Frank and Paul are going to visit Mount Rushmore. Yes. And you like, Ryan, about none of these, none of these men would get elected today <laughs> because they're, they're misogynists. Uh, racists. Racists. Anti-Semites. Yeah. 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 Slaveholders. All, they would all be disqualified <laughs> for be. various reasons. Right. They're, they're, pre- they're precisely the sort of person who could be elected in America now. <laughs> I mean, I Trump. It's, it's already happened. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. you've got this other guy, DeSantis, coming in and it's all now... Well, it makes you think I mean, it must, have been, must have been that way all along. Well, yeah. I mean, you, I mean, the, surely the the history of the world is circular. You know, we thought after we thought after World War One, well, it's never going to happen again. Then, you know, World War Two. You know, the, the the Weimar Republic, the the the, the, the Nazis supplant all of that. We here we go again. Then we set up a sort of a European community and a United Nations, and we say, look, now now human affairs will be rational and fair and reasonable, and we shall act accordingly. And I mean, America now is a fucking shit show of the highest order. Well, is it not? Uh, you're probably asking the wrong person. Why? Because I'm not going to say my country is a shit show. What's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> I live there. I'm a patriot. Yeah, yeah. It's a big thing in America. I remember saying to a friend of mine out in America not that long ago, and he said to me, "Don't come to our fucking country and talk about us like this." Do you get it's a very strange thing? Does it irritate you when somebody speaks about America like that? Talking to their ass, it does. Really? Yeah. 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 And that's what you think when you when it's said like that. You think that's one dimensional. Yeah, it's a generality. Come yeah. over there and live it every day. If you want to know about it, come and live it. Stay there. You know, vote. Take out residency. Become mm-hmm. a citizen. Then you can. Fuck. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. 
you'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. With it. And that is such an interesting thing, how protective American people are. Like if somebody came here and talked about Ireland and the differences here and what's going on in the north and all that there, it would just be a debate and people would say, yeah, yeah you know, you'd go back and forth on it. But it is interesting how zealously <coughs> Americans protect well, the idea of America. Um, you don't think the French do that? I'm not sure. I think if Irish, if somebody did that in Ireland, <laughs> we're always looking for people to say how great Ireland is. I that's a different thing. Yeah, when that, people come along and say they don't though. like it, we would. We would that's uh, a different thing, though. We'd, def- we'd, get, we'd bristle. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think Americans do react very badly to... Badly, you mean defensively? Yeah. Because we have yeah. something to defend. We have a great democracy to defend, which we understand now is under assault from yeah. within and, uh, and not just from without. So, you know, most of the time when someone is defensive about something, it's because that person has something he feels or she feels they have to defend and need to defend. I'm that way. And is there a sense in America, you know, because it looks from the outside like like that Trump thing, you know, there's 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 a hardcore, obviously. Yeah. But it looks 30 percent. It looks very much as though. That middle ground of America is turning away from that. Yeah, it does look that way to me too. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know at this particular yeah. day in June how that's going to pan out in the next year. It still wouldn't surprise me if by all of these people jumping into the election that they don't clear out just enough space for him to be nominated again. I think that could e- easily happen, that, yeah. that they'll just – divide up the middle ground and what's left is his 30% core and that that'll be enough to get him nominated. It, it, I don't think, but I was wrong in you know 2016, I don't think it'll ever be enough to get him elected again. No. I don't think so. I mean, would, would what happened on Capitol Hill not have a very visceral impact on the majority of Americans. I know that now, you know, uh, you know, it's 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 been described as a hoax and false, and that it was people just going up to see the Capitol, etc. Yeah, you know, by a certain yeah. rope to justify. It. But sure. surely it must have branded itself on the American psyche in I a very th- powerful way. <sighs> Be nice to think so. Um, 
you know, in the in the age of television, and now in the age of uh, everything, looking everybody looking at their screens of some kind or other, the attention span seems to be seems to be shortening. So even if it branded itself on those people two years ago, um, that brand may have paled somewhat in the in the meantime. Yeah. Life going on. What was your feeling watching it as somebody who feels there's something to be protected there when you saw that happening? Um, a mix, a mix of things, really. Um, but because I, I, I didn't think all of those mobs of people were going to overthrow the government. I didn't think that they were going to overthrow the election. Uh, I didn't think that was going to happen um, as they tried to do that. Um, it was an outrage. It was a break of, of a kind of profound civic decorum, um, which uh, you know any nation um, operates on. But I thought also, you know, this is in its own way also democracy at work. Uh, that's it was on those kinds of principles that the country was founded on the principles of revolution and overthrow. And I thought, well, I don't think it's going to happen. I think that the country is stronger than to let these clucks, uh, you know, invade the capital and overthrow the election. But I think this is this is this is a part of this is a part of the American character. I mean, the 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 worrying thing I think from the outset is the attack on the institutions that were venerated around the world. I mean, the Supreme Court, for example. Yes. And the way, you know, it, it, it appears from the outside to have become so partisan. The, the Supreme Court? Yeah. Well, the Supreme Court's been a partisan body all of its existence. Yep. I mean, if you think about Roosevelt in the 30s packing the court with all of the people that he needed to get the New, new Deal through, he did that. So the politicizing of the Supreme Court is nothing new, really. It's just it just particularly is the case that these guys are all right wingers now instead of instead of moderates and liberals. Yeah. yeah. So the the I mean the next presidential election has got to be crucial. I think every one of them is crucial. They're all crucial. Well, I mean this one I think, you know, let's just say for example that DeSantis. I mean, I, it's difficult to see how it would happen. I think he's just too unattractive a character. I mean, in the ways that, you know, Biden is kind of attractive in a sort of a dotty, avuncular way. Um, <laughs> uh, DeSantis. Can we cut this out? This is like, when you say that, it's like when he Joe speaks about America, you know, this is when well, Joe but, gets offensive. <laughs> but I don't think DeSantis has any of those, has any of those grace notes in no, his character. No, he looks no like he's person. angry all the time. His yeah. default face is a sneer. Yeah. Um, he, he, he actually seems too mean to get elected. I mean, Trump's mean, but Trump's mean in a clownish way. DeSantis is yeah. mean in a mean way. Yeah, Trump's funny with it. He you is. Know, I know it can become boring, but I mean, you know, it, I mean, Trump, I think, got there in a way where, you know, a part of a part of his appeal was that he really made you laugh at his opponent. Absolutely. You know, he, he, he happily belittled him, and it was and it stuck in your. I mean, he's good at insults. He's a schlockmeister for sure. What is he? He's a schlockmeister. I like that one. <laughs> a schlockmeister. Yeah. Seeking approval, right, seeking <laughs> approval, but not finding enough. That's what you write about, about Trump in the book. Right. Look, he's always looking around for somebody to nod. He's always looking around for somebody to say, yes, you're the man. Um, it's, it's just his, he's just searchlighting around all the time. You watch him. It's what he does. And is that why he's attracted to you know, Putin, to strong men around the world, that he kind of feels that you know, I, can get, I can bask in some of their kind of uh, masculinity? 
I think that's just ignorance. (laughs) I think that's just pure, unadulterated ignorance Mm -hmm. on his part. The thought that he could uh, elevate these people uh, to positions that would be a model for him just means he hasn't really thought about it very much but it, a lot, I, with I, a lot of other stuff. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it, I think, you know, whenever you're such an obvious narcissist and, you know, of no capacity for sort of self-reflection. None. You know, so, you know... That we can see. Yeah, I mean, your man, Roger Stone, I was laughing last week, Roger Stone was talking about how you persuade Trump to do something. You say, ah, you make up an event, he said. You say, ah, God, do you remember when you said that to that crowd? Ah, oh, they just, they loved it. They loved it. God, yeah, yeah, I do, I do remember that. And then, you, then you're then asked yeah. when you flattered him. You know, it's, it's just like a dog. Mm. You know, you get the dog, you, the dog turns over on its belly, you, you scratch its belly. And then he sometimes bites you. Do you consider yourself a southerner? You talked about Mississippi. Well, I have no choice. I have no choice. But you've written about you know it's not where if you were asked from your from your books where where is Richard Ford from, they wouldn't necessarily say Mississippi. Oh yeah, I would. I would have to say that. No, you would. But people who read your books, they knew nothing about you. Might say, do I think Jersey? Yeah, but, that, but you know, when I was a kid in Mississippi, one of the things I wanted to do was 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 inhabit the whole place. So in order to inhabit the whole place, and I, this is long before I thought I was going to write about it or put it in my books, I, I wanted to live in Michigan. I wanted to live in Montana. I wanted to live in New England. I thought when I looked at pictures of places that were in America, they didn't look like Mississippi, which I thought was a spoiled, corrupted place when I was when I was little. I thought, you know, we lost the war. We should have lost the war. Fine, good. Where else can I go? I thought mm-hmm. besides this particular place. So, uh, I'm I'm happy to just be as a writer and in, in my books, just I identified as an American. Uh, mm-hmm. And and but but you ask me where I'm from. Well, I have to say Jackson, Mississippi, because that just happens to be where I. Well, I mean, America is the whole world, no? Hmm? You know, everything's in America. I mean, first time I went to New York, we went to Van Cortland Park. Oh, playing, yeah, I was playing great football. The Caribbeans playing cricket. You bet. The Spaniards playing soccer. Absolutely. I mean, it was just inc- I'd never seen anything like it before. So you went to the Bronx? Oh, yeah. yeah. See, my people, my people all went to the Bronx. My great-uncle, Richie Broly, or yeah. sorry, Pat Broly, he was a famous bare-knuckle fist fighter in the Bronx. Ah, okay. I lived in the Bronx. Yeah. Down at, the, they lived down in Greystone, Greystone mm. Avenue, mm. close to the close to the one train, you know, at Fordham yes, University. I do. Right, 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 the right, right by Fordham, pizza. right in Fordham Road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I know yeah, it well. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. He used to sit in the sidewalk with a string vest, abusing them. Get off my street, you dirty wop. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, I remember once when we were children, these two guys came past and he says, Hey, Frankie, show the kids your gun. Mafia guys, and they opened their coats. You can do that today. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> the mafia loved him. You just say. can't say that word, though. <coughs> Wop. I, I was because hey, then hey. they'll show you your guns for real. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it was, they were afraid of him. He was a scary guy. Yeah, I think he was very friendly with. Right. He was protected. <laughs> Maybe he'd thrown a few fights. <laughs> and when you talk about optimism and you talk about the idea of, of bringing consolation, do you feel that? Uh, Moving from the particular to the general, do you feel optimistic about America 
and the world. It's, it seems like it's a very hard time to feel optimistic about anything. Um, <clears throat> well, if you think that optimism, um, well, there, there are a lot of definitions of optimism. I sometimes think it's uh, optimism is the capacity to think of the inevitable as desirable. But I, but I don't know what's inevitable in the American culture right now. It's a great line. Mm -hmm. Is that your own line? No, it's not. <laughs> I take credit for it. It's a man named, it's a man named Sol <laughs> Solomon. It's uh, a what? It's a, it's a fellow named Solomon. He writes for the New Yorker. That's yeah, a great but, line. Um, but I don't know. How, I don't know how far it extends either. It's a nice line, but I don't know how true it is. Um, but you know, I guess. I go on writing these books, you know. Mm. And so if I can go on writing these books, then I can project at least with the course of my life that there is a future where people will make use of them. Yeah. Um, and you spend a lot of time in Ireland. Much as I can. Yeah. Much as I can. Did you miss it when you couldn't travel during... Yes, I did. Yes, I did. I had a house rented over in... Uh, over in um, in Connemara and lost all the money from my house that I had nicely rented. <laughs> yeah. Where about did you rent? Near Clifton. It's great over you yeah, might, you've got to go to Belmullet, though. Get up to Black Sod, Belmullet. It's <coughs> incredible. Ah, no, we'll, I, take, we'll take you the next time ever, you're over. Can't ever go to enough places. Every, every place I go, I yeah. find some place that I haven't been that's as good. See, I think you'll never stop writing because you'll uh, you'll always be thinking. Well, and that's that, true. And that, in turn, helps people to think. And that's why I think in your book, you know, you never resolve anything. It's left to... Well, that's the nature of fiction. Fiction is always provisional. I mean, I can resolve this. I can resolve my story, or as, or as Seamus said, I can bring it to a scent. I can bring it, you know, so every, so all of the parts are in a scent. But it's always going to be provisional. Uh, somebody's going to come along and supplant it and fi find another kind of a scent to create at the end of a book. And is happiness provisional? That's a, well. That's a. That's a profound question. <clears throat> um, well, that's why we have you here. <laughs> <laughs> we worked that out before. <laughs> uh, is happiness provisional? No, uh, uh, unless unless you want to say that happiness, which is always an act of the imagination, really, um, is is it has its limits in the limits of your life. But I I, I think. Happiness itself, um, and you'd have to, we'd have to all disagree, uh, all agree about what it is. But it's always, I say, it's always something you imagine. It's always something that you make up out of parts and, and assemble for yourself, which is what this book is about. Mm -hmm. When your son is dying and, and all of the received intelligence and all of the received experience is gloomy, how then do you surmount that and make yourself able to go along, uh, make yourself, so to say, happy. You assemble it. You assemble the parts. And that's not, that's not provisional, I don't think. Because there is a great line in Independence Day, which, the, which Be Mine reminded me of, where, you, where Frank is talking to Paul, and it kind of echoes then in this book, because you realize... And this is the conversation of his whole life, really, talking to our since his son was born. Yes. And he says, you know, you shouldn't think you're not supposed to be happy, Paul. You understand that. You shouldn't get used to not being happy just because you can't make everything fit down right. Right. And I think that's beautiful. That is as a good way of looking at happiness. Yeah. You, you, yeah. Yeah, good pal of mine. 
two two good friends of mine, one very good friend of mine, had motor neurons. He was a f- fantastic Gaelic footballer, an athlete, sort of who had been. And he had motor neuron disease. Yeah, and then he developed motor neurons and lived for nine, ten years. Yep, and got very cross with me once because I said I was asked about him in an interview that I was doing, I think, on television, and. I said, you know, that although he was dying, that, and he rang me. And he said, why did you fucking say that about me? He said, I'm not dying. I'm living. What are you talking about? Don't don't say that again about me. I'm living. Good for him. You know, and it was, you know, and soon after that, we were we went to a game in Celtic Park, which is where Derry play, the team I played for, big championship game. And he was there, and his son was with him. And at that stage, he was in a sort of a carriage, you know, that that could lift him upright. Yes. It was like a wheelchair carriage, you know. A lift. And he was sipping his beer out of straw, chatting away to everybody, everybody coming over. Quite alive. Hey. And Quite alive. You know, what a lesson it was to see that and to see that. But all we have is today. I mean, you have a great... I think one of the things that was most powerful for me in the sports center was you talked about, you know, not not looking around the corner. No, yeah. The way you put it was not looking around. I mean, what happens when you don't look around? And You need to look at things. <laughs> Richard, it's been fantastic. It's well, it's been really been nice to get to have this to chat with you. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you for doing it. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.